friends of Fellowship Baptist Church in East China, Michigan. Thank you so much uh, for clicking the link and joining me for the Sunday morning message. Uh, if you are brand new uh, to our online community and this is the first time uh, that you have joined our message, my name is Terry Coons and I'm the pastor here at Fellowship Baptist Church. Again, thank you for joining me. Our text for today is Revelation chapter 1. In verses 9 through 12, I will be putting the scripture passages up on the screen, uh, but wanted to make sure that you're aware of that uh, so that if you would prefer to follow along in your own copy of God's word, uh, you can be turning to that passage right now. Again, Revelation chapter 1, and we will begin our study with verse 9 today. Uh, before we jump into our text, though, uh, just a quick review of where we've been. We have seen so far that God the Father gave his revelation to the Son, to Jesus, who then sent it out through an angel to his servant John. Uh, we have noticed that there is a blessing promised to, to those who hear the revelation, a blessing promised to those who obey the revelation, and to those who proclaim the revelation. Why? The answer is because the time is near. There is an urgency to this message. There is an urgency for the saved to present the gospel, and there is an urgency for the unsaved to receive the gospel. And so John sends out the revelation given to him from the Lord to seven churches located in seven actual cities throughout Asia Minor. Last week, we noticed that John used three descriptive phrases about Jesus. He calls Jesus the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. Likewise, John shares three works of Jesus. Jesus loves us, and he loves us so much that he has freed us from our sins by his blood. And Jesus made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. And last week, you'll remember, too, that we also saw that John has a dual purpose for writing. John is very pastoral. He's very concerned about these churches that he has ownership over. And he has a dual purpose for writing and sending this to him, this revelation. He is writing to both encourage suffering believers, believers who have been caught up in the Roman persecution, and he's also writing to exhort complacent believers that they would know that God is in control and that Jesus is with them. That's all review. So this morning, I just want to walk you through four more verses. We begin this morning in chapter 1 and in verse 9. Would you follow along with me as we read this together? I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book 
and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. This is the word of our God. John shares, first of all, if we go back to verse 9, he shares the setting for which he receives the vision of the glorified Jesus. And notice here in this verse that he again identifies himself as the author. This is the third time that John has done this in just nine verses, where he identifies himself as the human author of this revelation. He wants the churches, these churches scattered throughout the seven cities, seven actual cities, he wants the churches to understand clearly that this is an account coming from him. Just like with his gospel, he is giving testimony to what he has seen with his own eyes. This revelation that he is about to give to these churches is something that he has witnessed himself. Also notice here in the text that he adds to his bio. He adds to his personal biography. Remember, if we look back, and and, and you can do this, look back at verse 1. He, he doesn't use other titles to describe himself. Uh, and you'll remember that I talked about the more impressive sounding titles that John could have used for his bio. He could have said things like, I'm one of the 12 disciples, or I'm an apostle, or my personal favorite, he could have said, I'm a son of thunder. But John doesn't use any of these more impressive sounding titles. Instead, in verse 1, he introduces himself as a doulos. Doulos, again, is the Greek word that we translate servant or slave. I'm a slave of Christ. And now John adds to this description of himself. Look again at verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner, your brother and partner, in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. So what is John communicating? What more information is he giving about himself in this verse? How does this add to this description of himself? Well, first of all, we need to see that he is acknowledging, he is acknowledging the suffering and the persecution of the Christ followers who compose his original audience. And second, John is identifying with their suffering. He's identifying with them. He too is suffering persecution along with them. You see, he is their brother. He is their partner. He's a slave of Christ, but he's a brother. He's a partner in the persecution. How was John suffering? He was exiled on the island of Patmos. Why? Well, at the end of verse 9 tells us, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He was being punished by the Roman Empire for preaching and for testifying to the gospel, testifying about Jesus. And this would have been at the end of the first century, just to give you a little bit of historical background here. This is the end of the first century under the reign of Emperor Domitian. And Domitian was no 
uh, fan of Christianity whatsoever. And so he was violently persecuting the church during this time. But why on the island of Patmos? Why was John in exile on this island? Bible scholar Craig Keener, you see the quote uh, on the screen for you there. Bible scholar Craig Keener writes this. He says, although different kinds of exile existed, usually exile involved banishment to an island, hence Patmos. Often people of a lower social status were executed enslaved or banished to the mines or to die in gladiatorial combat. But John was aged and sometimes those in authority sentenced per persons more lightly on account of their age. So John, we shouldn't think though, got off easy, but he was exiled to this island of Patmos. Now, why do I say that he, he didn't get off easy because of his age? Well, because this was certainly not a vacation resort. This was not an easy uh, sentence for John to endure. His living conditions on Patmos would have certainly been very difficult and harsh. Especially for someone his age, this would have been a very difficult punishment for him to endure. And so I think what John is saying here and calling himself a brother and a partner is that, look, I am facing this persecution right along with you, church. I'm here in exile on Patmos, and I'm your brother. I am your partner. I am facing the suffering that you're enduring just like you are. I think it's important for us to understand, church, that persecution, persecution is part of what it means to be in Jesus. It's part of what it means to be a Christian. Now, why do I point this out? If I could just take a quick sermon within a sermon here. Why do I point this out? Because there is teaching out there that says Jesus will solve all of our problems in this life. And that all we will know is health and wealth and abundance. Teaching that says that we could just have our best life right now. This is certainly not biblical. This type of teaching is not from the pages of Scripture. It's certainly not what the apostles endured during their lifetimes. Let me just show you one passage that illustrates this. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verses 11 through 12. Here Paul writes, and he says to the church in Corinth, to the present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted with homeless and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. It wasn't the experience of our forefathers in the faith to just know abundance and health and wealth and happiness. They faced persecution. And it's also not what the apostles taught. Let me just show you this passage from the book of Acts. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Church, here's how I would say it. This is God's timeline for our lives. This is what God's message to us would be on this issue of persecution. 
Continue in the faith. Brother and sister Christian out there listening to me right now, continue in the faith. Proclaim the gospel. Endure persecution. And then enter the kingdom. Church, our best life is not right now. Our best life is yet to come. It's yet to come as a citizen of a kingdom that will last forever. Moving on to verse 10, John writes this, and he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. The Lord's day here uh, most likely is just a reference to Sunday. Uh, Acts chapter 20, verse 7, you can look at these passages. 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 2 indicate that Christians were already regularly gathering on Sunday. Uh, Even back in in these apostolic times, in these times when the New Testament were written, we were already starting to gather together on Sundays. Most likely, this was the day that was chosen in order to commemorate Jesus' resurrection from the dead. John's original audience would have understood the phrase, in the Spirit, in the context of prophetic inspiration. Uh, If we continue with verse 10, look at the rest of verse 10. John writes that he heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. He heard a loud voice like that of a trumpet. That's what the text says. Why does John compare the voice that he hears to a trumpet? Was it loud? Was it it clear? Was it loud and clear? (laughs) Was there something in the, the timbre of the voice that reminded John of a trumpet? We don't know, but the important thing is what the voice says. And and here's the content of what John hears. Uh, Look at verse 11, Revelation 1, verse 11. The voice says, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. I don't want you to miss this. It's so easy. It would be so easy for us to to see this and to just, okay, well, that's just a little bit of information. That's what John was supposed to do. And, And we just move past it without thinking about it. John is given an assignment here. He's not just given the revelation so that he can keep it within himself, but he's given the revelation so that he can preach it and proclaim it to others. John, what you are about to see, this voice is communicating to him, what you are about to see is not just for your benefit. You need to share it with other people. John hears the voice, he hears the assignment, and he sees. What does he see? What he sees isn't important, not nearly as important as who John sees. Because this is what truly matters. Look at verse, verses 12 and the beginning of verse 13. And, and this is where we'll stop as far as studying these, this passage today. If you look at verse 12, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And then look at the beginning of verse 13. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. Who is it that John sees in this moment? He sees the Son of Man. This is a title 
that first appeared in the Old Testament. Sometimes we don't think about this, but I want to take you back to the Old Testament. Let's look at what Daniel wrote. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And this title, Son of Man, is used dozens of times in the book of Ezekiel. This is the title that Jesus is going to apply to himself in the Gospels. During his earthly ministry, on more than 40 occasions that were written down for us in the four Gospels. I'm sure he probably used it many, many more times than that. But there are 40 separate occasions that were actually written down in the four Gospels where Jesus applies the title Son of Man to himself. Who is it that John sees in this moment? He sees the Son of Man. Friends, he sees Jesus. He sees his Lord. He sees his Savior. He sees his friend. Don't forget, I just want to walk you through this and, and help you to think through this. Don't forget, John had seen Jesus every day for years when he was a young man. We have to roll this tape way back, way back from this moment when, when the revelation is given to him on the island of Patmos. But if we go back decades, he had seen Jesus every day for years as a young man, but he had never seen him like this before. I mean, I wonder what kind of memories flooded through John's mind in this moment. Several decades prior to this moment, John had been out fishing with his brother James and their dad Zebedee. They were just out there doing some repair work on their equipment. They were businessmen. They were fishermen. They had to keep their, their equipment in good working order, and they're out there fixing their nets, and, and Jesus walks by. And Jesus called out to John and James, and they left everything. They left their dad sitting in the boat. They left their business, and they left it, and they followed after Christ. John had walked with Jesus. He had eaten with him. He had talked to him. There was even one day where he watched him sleep during a violent storm. Uh, they were out in the boat, and this violent storm comes up, and, and Jesus is sleeping through the storm until they wake him up. And, and then they watched him as he, just with a few words, calms the storm. John had listened to his words many times. Such words on, on the side of a mountain. One instance where so many people had gathered and they're on the mountainside. It, where it seemed that to him that, John, that Jesus was kicking the door of heaven open. And revealing to them so much more about the heart of the Father and, and God's will for us as people. They could see so much of God's moral revelation that day. As Jesus made statements like, you, you've heard it, it was said this, but I tell you this. And, and they saw that it, what was right or wrong has so much more to do than just with our actions, but it, it's our words, it's our thoughts that also matter. God was concerned 
with our hearts. And John had also seen Jesus' love for them in action so many times, whether it was healing a blind man or cleansing a leper or making a crippled man walk. (laughs) To watch these miracles must have been amazing for John and the other disciples. Jesus could heal people from a great distance, and so many times he did. But he could also heal people by touching them. And he had seen one lady whose faith was so strong that she crawled up to him and and just touched his garment and was healed in that moment. John had seen Jesus at the very height of his popularity when there were thousands of people following him. Bible scholars estimate that at different times in Christ's ministry, 20,000 people following after him. And he had seen him perform such incredible miracles of feeding all of these people and ministering to them in so many different ways. John would have been there when Christ rode into Jerusalem and these enormous crowds laid down palm branches in front of him, receiving him as their king. But John was also there and had seen the large crowds of people shout, crucify him. John had been the only male disciple that we know of to be at the cross of Jesus. There were other female followers of Christ at the cross. But as far as we know, only one of the 12, only one of the men that had the courage to go to the cross itself when Jesus was being crucified. And that was John. Maybe it's for this reason that Jesus gives John stewardship over his mom. Mary became John's mom at that moment. And he watched over her until her death. A couple of days after the cross, Mary Magdalene bursts into the room where he and Peter were and told them that the stone had been rolled away from the tomb. He and Peter took off running that day. And since he was in better shape than Peter, it seems, he arrives first. He believed that Jesus rose from that very moment, the moment that he saw the empty tomb. John believed that he rose from the grave. He didn't have to walk in faith for too long, though, because Jesus appears to them just a little bit later. John had seen the resurrected Jesus. He had seen the resurrected Christ. What what a moment that must have been. John was able to spend just a little more time with Jesus during those days after the resurrection. It wasn't enough time. John, I'm sure, was hoping and wishing for more, but it was some. And then one day, Jesus again speaks to them on the side of a mountain, And he gives to them a great commission to John and to the other followers, assuring them that he would always be with them as they followed after him. And then Jesus left, and he returned to his heavenly Father. But now it had been decades. It had been decades since he last saw him. And and over those years, 
so many years, John followed after Christ. He continued to follow after Jesus as his rabbi. He couldn't physically see him anymore. He couldn't audibly hear his voice any longer. He couldn't embrace him in a hug like he once did. But in some strange way, just as Christ told him it would, it was better. It was even better than when Jesus was with him physically in person, because now he felt the presence of Christ within him, no longer just next to him, but now inside of him. He felt Christ's presence as he proclaimed the gospel. He felt his presence as he planted churches, as he discipled sons and daughters in the faith. He felt his presence as those churches planted other churches and the, and the gospel continued to spread. He felt his presence when his disciples made other disciples and he'll, he would write in one of his letters, there's no greater joy. There's no greater joy than knowing that my children are walking with the Lord. Disciples who make disciples who make more disciples. And John felt his presence maybe the most during times of persecution, first from the Jewish authorities and then later from the Roman Empire. He felt his presence when they had put him on in chains and put him on a boat that was bound for the island of Patmos where he would be held in exile. John had grown old following Jesus. John had seen Jesus and he had felt his presence but church, listen, John had never seen Jesus like this. He had never seen Jesus like this when the revelation happens. And we're going to unpack that more next week. But as we close out our time this morning, please notice, according to verse 13, where Jesus is standing. Don't miss this. This is so important that you see this. In verse 13, where is Jesus, the Son of Man, standing? Where is Jesus standing when John sees him? Jesus is in the middle of the lampstands. He's at the center of the lampstands. Why is that important? What is the significance of the lampstands? If you look at the end of the chapter, I would encourage you to do this, chapter 1, and look at verse 20. It tells us the answer. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. Jesus is in the middle of the seven lampstands. Jesus is at the center of the seven churches. Jesus is standing with his church. Here is the glorious truth that I want to leave you with this morning. Whatever else we discover in this book as we work through it, whatever else we discover that this book is about in the coming months, here is one of the most important things for us to see about the book of Revelation. Jesus stands with his church. He will not abandon her and he is returning for her. The return of Jesus Christ is taught all through the New Testament, and it culminates here in Revelation. It's one of, one of the ideas that almost all, almost 
every single one of the New Testament authors touches upon. And I just need to show you this as, as we wrap up this morning. During his earthly ministry, Jesus promised this. He said, therefore, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And John records Jesus saying in John 14, 3, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. The angels testified to this very truth at the ascension in Acts chapter 1, where they say, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The Apostle Paul testifies about this to the Thessalonians when he writes, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven, and with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. The author of Hebrews says this, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. James gives testimony about this. He says, You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Peter will write about this and say, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. And John will write about this in one of his letters and say, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And most importantly, church, Jesus Jesus says, the glorified Christ at the end of the book of Revelation says this, surely I am coming soon. Brothers and sisters, this morning, you can bank on this. Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. And until that day, he stands among the lampstands. Jesus is returning. And until that day, day he stands with his church. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are so thankful for your word this morning. We are so thankful for the book of Revelation. But God, most of all, most of all this morning, I just want to thank you for this promise that the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, who was born as a baby, who lived on this earth, ministering to people, loving people, serving people, going to the cross and dying for the forgiveness of our sins, who rose again from the grave and ascended back to heaven, that this Jesus stands with his church and one day will return for her. Jesus, we are so thankful to you. We give you all the praise and the glory in your precious name. Amen. Fellowship Baptist, thank you so much for joining uh, for the message this morning. Uh, there will be a separate video. You, you may notice it as well, uh, but there will be a separate video where I will be leading you uh, around the Lord's table as we celebrate communion together. Please make sure uh, to join in on that as well. God bless you until we meet again.